Chapter forty five, part four of the Ragged Trousered Philanthropists. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ty Hines. The Ragged Trousered Philanthropists by Robert Tressel. Chapter forty five, part four. It was not till the chairman had made several urgent appeals for more questions that Crass brightened up, a glad smile slowly spread over and illuminated his greasy visage. He had at last thought of a most serious and insurmountable obstacle to the establishment of the cooperative commonwealth. "'What?' he demanded in a loud voice. "'What are you going to do in this here socialist republic of yours with them what won't work?' As Crass flung this bombshell into the socialist camp, the miserable, ragged-trousered crew around him could scarcely forbear a cheer, but the more intelligent part of the audience only laughed. "'We don't believe there'll be any such people as that,' said Barrington. "'There's plenty of them about now, anyway,' sneered Crass. "'You can't change human nature, you know,' cried the man behind the moat, and the one who had the copper-wire stitches in his boot laughed scornfully. "'Yes, I know there's plenty such now,' rejoined Barrington. "'It's only what is to be expected, considering that practically all the workers live in poverty and are regarded with contempt. The conditions under which most of the work is done at present are so unpleasant and degrading that everyone refuses to do any unless they're compelled.' None of us here, for instance, would continue to work for Rushton if it were not for the fact that we have either to do so or starve, and when we do work we only just earn enough to keep body and soul together. Under the present system everybody who can possibly manage to do so avoids doing any work, the only difference being that some people do their loafing better than others. The aristocracy are too lazy to work, but they seem to get on all right. They have their tenants to work for them. Rushton is too lazy to work, so he has arranged that we and Nimrod shall work instead, and he fares much better than any of us who do work. Then there's another kind of loafers who go about begging and occasionally starving rather than submit to such abominable conditions as are offered to them. These last are generally not so much worse off than we are, and are often better off. At present people have everything to gain, and but little to lose by refusing to work. Under socialism it would be just the reverse. The conditions of labour would be so pleasant, the hours of obligatory work so few, and the rewards so great, that it is absurd to imagine that anyone would be so foolish as to incur the contempt of his fellows, and make himself a social outcast by refusing to do the small share of work demanded of him by the community of which he was a member. As for what we would do to such individuals if there did happen to be some, I can assure you that we would not treat them as we treat them now. We would not dress them up in silk and satin and broadcloth and fine linen, and we would not embellish them as you do, with jewels of gold and jewels of silver and with precious stones, neither should we allow them to fare sumptuously every day. Our method of dealing them would be quite different from yours. In the cooperative commonwealth there will be no place for such loafers. Whether they call themselves aristocrats or tramps, those who are too lazy to work shall have no share in the things that are produced by the labour of others. Those who do nothing shall have nothing. If a man will not work, neither shall he eat. Under the present system, a man who is really too lazy to work may stop you in the street and tell you that he cannot get employment. For all you know, he may be telling the truth, and if you have any feeling and are able, you will help him. But in the socialist state, no one will have any such excuse, because everyone that was willing would be welcome to come and help in the work of producing wealth and happiness for all, and afterwards he would also be welcome to his full share of the results." "'Any more complaints?' inquired the chairman, breaking the gloomy silence that followed. "'I don't want anyone to think that I'm blaming any of those present-day loafers,' 
Barrington added. The wealthy ones cannot be expected voluntarily to come and work under existing conditions, and if they were to do so, they would be doing more harm than good. They would be doing some poor wretches out of employment. They are not to be blamed. The people who are to blame are the working classes themselves, who demand and vote for the continuance of the present system. As for the other class of loafers, those at the bottom, the tramps and people of that sort, if they were to become sober and industrious tomorrow, they would also be doing more harm than good to the workers. It would increase the competition for work. If all the loafers in Mugsborough could be suddenly transformed into decent house-painters next week, Nimrod might be able to cut down the wages another penny an hour. I don't wish to speak disrespectfully of these tramps at all. Some of them are such simply because they would rather starve than submit to the degrading conditions that we submit to. They do not see the force of being bullied and chased and driven about in order to gain semi-starvation and rags. They are able to get those without working, and I sometimes think that they are more worthy of respect and are altogether a nobler type of being than a lot of broken-spirited wretches like ourselves, who are always at the mercy of our masters and always in dread of the sack. "'Any more questions?' said the chairman. "'Do you mean to say that the time will ever come when the gentry will mix up on equal terms with the likes of us?' demanded the man behind the moat scornfully. "'Oh, no,' replied the lecturer. "'When we get socialism, there won't be any people like us. Everybody will be civilised.' The man behind the moat did not seem very satisfied with this answer, and told the others that he could not see anything to laugh at. "'Is there any more questions?' cried Philpot. Now's your chance to get some of your own back, but don't all speak at once. I should like to know who's going to do all the dirty work, said Slime. If everyone is to be allowed to choose his own trade, who'd be fool enough to choose to be a scavenger, a sweep, a dustman or a sewer man? Nobody would want to do such jobs as them, and everyone would be after the soft jobs. Of course, cried Crass, eagerly clutching at this last straw. The thing sounds all right till you comes to look into it. But it wouldn't never work. It would be very easy to deal with any difficulty of that sort, replied Barrington. If it were found that too many people were desirous of pursuing certain callings, it would be known that the conditions attached to those kinds of work were unfairly easy, as compared with other lines. So the conditions in those trades would be made more severe. A higher degree of skill would be required. If we found that too many persons wished to be doctors, architects, engineers and so forth, we would increase the severity of the examinations. This would scare away all but the most gifted and enthusiastic. We should thus at one stroke reduce the number of applicants and secure the very best men for the work. We should have better doctors, better architects, better engineers than before. As regards those disagreeable tasks for which there was a difficulty in obtaining volunteers, we should adopt the opposite means. Suppose that six hours was a general thing and we found that we could not get any sewer men. We should reduce the hours of labour in that department to four or, if necessary, to two, in order to compensate for the disagreeable nature of the work. Another way out of such difficulties would be to have a separate division of the industrial army to do all such work, and to make it obligatory for every man to put in his first year of state service as a member of this corps. There would be no hardship in that. Everyone gets the benefit of such work. There would be no injustice in requiring everyone to share. This would have the effect also of stimulating invention. It would be to everyone's interest to think out means of doing away with such kinds of work, and there is no doubt that most of it will be done by machinery in some way or other. A few years ago the only way to light up the streets of the town was to go around to each separate gas lamp and light each jet, one at a time. 
Now we press a few buttons and light up the whole town with electricity. In the future we shall probably be able to press a button and flush out the sewers. What about religion? said Slime. I suppose there won't be no churches or chapels. We shall all have to be atheists. Everybody will be perfectly free to enjoy their own opinions and to practice any religion they like. But no religion or sect will be maintained by the state. If any congregation or body of people wish to have a building for their own exclusive use as a church or chapel or lecture hall, it will be supplied to them by the state on the same terms as those upon which dwelling-houses will be supplied. The state will construct a special kind of building, and the congregation will have to pay the rent, the amount to be based on the cost of construction, in paper money, of course. As far as the embellishment or decoration of such places is concerned, there will of course be nothing to prevent the members of the congregation, if they wish, from doing any such work as that themselves in their own spare time, of which they will have plenty. If everybody's got to do their share of the work, where's the minister and clergyman to come from? Well, there are at least three ways out of that difficulty. First, ministers of religion could be drawn from the ranks of the veterans, men over forty-five years old who had completed their term of state service. You must remember that these will not be worn-out wrecks, as too many of the working classes are at that age now. They will have good food and clothing and good general conditions all their lives, and consequently they will be in the very prime of life. They will be younger than many of us now are at thirty. They will be ideal men for the positions we are speaking of, all well educated in their youth, and all will have had plenty of leisure for self-culture during the years of their state service, and they will have the additional recommendation that their congregation will not be required to pay anything for their services. Another way, if the congregation wished to retain the full-time service of a young man whom they thought specially gifted, but who had not completed his term of state service, they could secure him by paying the state for his services. Thus, the young man would still remain in state employment, he would still continue to receive his pay from the national treasury, and at the age of forty-five would be entitled to his pension, like any other worker, and after that the congregation would have to pay the state nothing. A third, and as it seems to me the most respectable way, would be for the individual in question to act as minister or pastor or lecturer, or whatever it was, to the congregation without seeking to get out of doing his share of the state service. The hours of obligatory work would be so short, and the work so light, that he would have an abundance of leisure to prepare his orations without sponging on his co-religionists. "'Hear, hear!' cried Harlow. "'Of course,' said Barrington, it would not only be congregations of Christians who could adopt any of these methods. It is possible that a congregation of agnostics, for instance, might want a separate building or to maintain a lecturer. "'What the hell's an agnostic?' demanded Bundy. "'An agnostic,' said the man behind the moat, "'is a bloke what don't believe nothing unless he sees it with his own eyes.' "'All these details,' continued the speaker, "'of the organisation of affairs and the work of the Cooperative Commonwealth, "'are things which do not concern us at all.' They have merely been suggested by different individuals as showing some ways in which these things could be arranged. The exact methods to be adopted will be decided upon by the opinion of the majority when the work is being done. Meantime, what we have to do is insist upon the duty of the State to provide productive work for the unemployed, the State feeding of children, the nationalisation or socialisation of railways, land, the trust, and all public services that are still in the hands of private companies. If you wish to see these things done, you must cease from voting for Liberal and Tory sweaters, shareholders of companies, lawyers, aristocrats and capitalists. You must fill the House of Commons with revolutionary socialists. 
that is, men who are in favour of completely changing the present system, and in the day that you do that, you will have solved the poverty problem. No more tramping the streets begging for a job, no more hungry children at home, no more broken boots and ragged clothes, no more women and children killing themselves with painful labour, while strong men stand idly by, but joyous work and joyous leisure for all. "'Is there any more questions?' cried Philpot. "'Is it true?' said Easton, that socialists intend to do away with the army and navy. Yes, it is true. Socialists believe in international brotherhood and peace. Nearly all wars are caused by profit-seeking capitalists, seeking new fields for commercial exploitation, and by aristocrats who make it the means of glorifying themselves in the eyes of the deluded common people. You must remember that socialism is not only a national, but an international movement, and when it is realised, there will be no possibility of war and we shall no longer need to maintain an army and navy, or to waste a lot of labour building warships or manufacturing arms and ammunition. All those people who are now employed will be at liberty to assist in the great work of producing the benefits of civilization, creating wealth and knowledge and happiness for themselves and others. Socialism means peace on earth and goodwill to all mankind. But in the meantime we know that the people of other nations are not yet all socialists. We do not forget that in foreign countries, just the same as in Britain, there are large numbers of profit-seeking capitalists, who are so destitute of humanity that if they thought it could be done successfully and with profit to themselves, they would not scruple to come here to murder and to rob. We do not forget that in foreign countries, the same as here, there are plenty of so-called Christian bishops and priests, always ready to give their benediction to any such murderous projects, and to blasphemously pray to the supreme being to help his children to slay each other like wild beasts. And knowing and remembering all this, we realise that until we have done away with capitalism, aristocracy and anti-Christian clericalism, it is our duty to be prepared to defend our homes and our native land and therefore we are in favour of maintaining national defensive forces in the highest possible state of efficiency. But that does not mean that we are in favour of the present system of organising those forces. We do not believe in conscription, and we do not believe that the nation should continue to maintain a professional standing army to be used at home for the purpose of butchering men and women of the working classes in the interests of a handful of capitalists, as has been done at Featherstone and Belfast or to be used abroad to murder and rob the people of other nations. Socialists advocate the establishment of a national citizen army for defensive purposes only. We believe that every able-bodied man should be compelled to belong to this force and to undergo a course of military training, but without making him into a professional soldier, or taking him away from civil life, depriving him of the rights of citizenship, or making him subject to military law, which is only another name for tyranny and despotism. This citizen army could be organised on somewhat similar lines to the present territorial force, with certain differences. For instance, we do not believe, as our present rulers do, that wealth and aristocratic influence are the two most essential qualifications for an efficient officer. We believe that all ranks should be attainable by any man, no matter how poor, who is capable of passing the necessary examinations, and that there should be no expense attached to those positions which the government grant, or the pay is not sufficient to cover. The officers could be appointed in one of several ways. They might be elected by the men they have to command, the only qualification required being that they pass their examinations, or they might be appointed according to merit, the candidate obtaining the highest number of marks at the examinations to have first call on any vacant post, and so on, in order of merit. We believe in the total abolition of courts-martial. Any offence against discipline, 
should be punishable by the ordinary civil law, no member of the citizen army being deprived of the rights of a citizen. "'What about the Navy?' cried several voices. "'Nobody wants to interfere with the Navy, except to make its organisation more democratic, the same as that of the citizen army, and to protect its members from tyranny by entitling them to be tried in a civil court for any alleged offence. It has been proved that if the soil of this country were scientifically cultivated, it is capable of producing sufficient to maintain a population of a hundred million of people. Our present population is only about forty million, but so long as the land remains in the possession of the persons who refuse to allow it to be cultivated, we shall continue to be dependent on other countries for our food supply. So long as we are in that position, and so long as foreign countries are governed by liberal and Tory capitalists, we shall need the navy to protect our overseas commerce from them. If we had a citizen army such as I have mentioned, of nine or ten millions of men, and if the land of this country was properly cultivated, we should be invincible at home. No foreign power would ever be mad enough to attempt to land their forces on our shores. But they would now be able to starve us all to death in a month if it were not for the navy. It's a sensible and credible position, isn't it? concluded Barrington. Even in times of peace, thousands of people standing idle and tamely starving in their own fertile country, because a few landlords forbid them to cultivate it. "'Is there any more questions?' demanded Philpot, breaking a prolonged silence. "'Would any Liberal or Tory capitalist like to take to the pulpit and oppose the Speaker?' the chairman went on, finding that no one responded to his appeal for more questions. The silence continued. "'As there's no more questions, and no one won't get up into the pulpit,' It is now my painful duty to call upon someone to move a resolution. Well, Mr. Chairman, said Harlow, I may say that when I came to this firm I was a liberal, but through listening to several lectures by Professor Owen, and attending the meetings on the hill at Windley, and reading the books and pamphlets I bought there from Owen, I came to the conclusion some time ago that it's a mug's game for us to vote for capitalists, whether they call themselves liberals or Tories. They're all alike when you're working for them. I defy any man to say what's the difference between a Liberal and a Tory employer. There is none. There can't be. They're both sweaters, and they've got to be, or they wouldn't be able to compete with each other. And since that's what they are, I say it's a mug's game for us to vote them into Parliament, to rule over us and make laws that we've got to abide by, whether we like it or not. There's nothing to choose between them, and the proof of it is that it's never made much difference to us which party was in or which was out. It's quite true that in the past both of them have passed good laws, but they've only done it when public opinion was so strong in favour of it that they knew there was no way of getting out of it, and then it was a toss-up which side did it. That's the way I've been looking at things lately, and I'd almost made up my mind never to vote no more, or to trouble myself about politics at all, because although I could see there was no sense in voting for liberal or Tory capitalists, at the same time I must admit I couldn't make out how socialism was going to help us but the explanation of it which Professor Barrington has given us this afternoon has been a bit of an eye-opener for me, and with your permission I should like to move as a resolution, that it is the opinion of this meeting that socialism is the only remedy for unemployment and poverty. The conclusion of Harlow's address was greeted with loud cheers from the socialists, but most of the Liberal and Tory supporters of the present system maintained a sulky silence. "'I'll second that resolution,' said Easton. "'And I lay a bob both ways,' remarked Bundy. The resolution was then put, and though the majority were against it, the chairman declared it was carried unanimously. By this time the violence of the storm had in a great measure abated, but as rain was still falling it was decided not to attempt to resume work that day. 
Besides, it would have been too late even if the weather had cleared up. "'Perhaps it's just as well it has rained,' remarked one man. "'If it hadn't, some of us might have got a sack tonight. As it is, there'll be hardly enough for us all to do tomorrow and Saturday morning, even if it is fine.' It was true. Nearly all the outside was finished, and what remained to be done was ready for the final coat. Inside, all there was to do was to colour-wash the walls, and to give the woodwork of the kitchen and scullery the last coat of paint. It was inevitable, unless the firm had some other work for them to do somewhere else, that there would be a great slaughter on Saturday. "'Now,' said Philpot, assuming what he meant to be the manner of a school-teacher addressing children, "'I want you all to make a special effort and get here very early in the morning, say about four o'clock, and then what do's the most tomorrow will get a prize on Saturday.' "'What'll it be? The sack?' inquired Harlow. "'Yes,' replied Philpot. "'And not only will you get a prize for good conduct tomorrow, "'but if you keep on working like you've been doing lately, "'till you're too old and worn out to do any more, "'you'll be allowed to go to a nice workhouse for the rest of your lives, "'and each one of you will be given a title. Pauper.' And they laughed, although the majority of them had mothers and fathers, or near relatives who had already succeeded to this title. They laughed. As they were going home, Crass paused at the gate, and pointing to the large gable end of the house, he said to Philpot, "'You'll want the longest ladder, the sixty-five for that tomorrow.' Philpot looked up at the gable. It was very high. End of chapter 45, part 4